G'day everyone, and welcome to My Union Road in ABA. This is a podcast to chronicle the progress towards a new enterprise bargaining agreement at Monash University and is brought to you by members of the Monash branch of the NTEU. We're here to take the old agreement and hashtag change it. And unlike our namesake, my dad wrote a porno, do everything we can to avoid being fucked in the process. Those involved with the podcast would like to acknowledge that it is being recorded on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nations, on whose lands we live, teach, and work. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians and elders, past and present, and to the continuation of the cultural, spiritual, and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Hi everyone, welcome to the second of two episodes from our October teaching. These two talks from Chris and Marjorie focus more on HR and management and some of the issues, shall we say, that stem from them and the way that the people in those positions often choose to execute their tasks and the approaches that they choose to take. This is particularly relevant now as we're officially back at the bargaining table for 2024 and progressing ever closer to the point end of bargaining where the biggest and most thorny issues around pay, workloads and job security will be discussed. These will not be simple negotiations and is where we're expecting the most pushback from the university's representatives in bargaining. As a result, it is also the point at which it will be most important for union members to be aware of what is going on, to be preparing to show up and show our strength through industrial action, and to be talking to as many people as we can so that those in senior management are feeling that their feet are being held to the fire. As the bargaining team approaches the final boss battle in bargaining, we need to be as well-armed as we can be. So keep an eye out for communications from the branch that will be hitting your inboxes soon with ways that you can get involved and what is coming up. And if you have any ideas or suggestions for things that we should be doing or could be doing or any intel that you think might be helpful, please email us at the branch at monash at nteu.org.au or at the podcast at myunionwroteaneba at gmail.com. And if you think there are things that we should be covering on the podcast that we aren't, uh, send those through to us as well. Anyway, that's enough from me. Here's Chris and Marjorie. So our next speaker is Chris Meerlin. Hello, Chris. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could uh, tell us uh, where you're based and how long uh, you've been here at Monash? Okay. Well, I'm Chris Meerlin. I'm probably a little bit different in that... Um, I'm a sessional and have been a sessional casual here for, what, 16 years now? And put simply is I'm here because of Marjorie, because I actually did my Masters um, of Employment and Industrial Relations uh, with Jerry Griffin and Marjorie back, well, it was back when Monash actually had a dedicated key centre of industrial relations in at Collins Street. And actually, I'm supposed to be talking a bit about industrial relations today, so I'll try and not go too far off script and keep it within the context. But basically, by the time I finished that uh, my master's degree, Marjorie said, look, would you like to come and do some um, teaching in the postgraduate class that I run, which I thought, well, as long as it's in the evening and doesn't interfere with my full-time day job, I'd love to. And I'd, I'd feel I'd be giving something back to Monash. And I think that one thing that I sort of, it struck me immediately was that um, Marjorie and the others from that key centre of industrial relations really understood the importance of needing to integrate education 
with industry. So I effectively came in as an industry partner, not in the sense that we've probably briefly mentioned today in that sort of looking for some sort of corporate hook on. Sorry? <laughs> yeah, no, but, but, but thinking about how can we enhance the student experience? Because after all, this is what we're here for. Now, Kate, I think it's Kate, isn't it? Yeah, Kate, you, you've got me feeling extremely nostalgic with your, your, what you were saying about because I've just been walking around in a bit of a surreal daydream since I arrived here this morning because I remembered how fondly I remember my undergraduate days here as a student doing a Bachelor of Economics when Monash was the only campus um, and only one of three universities here in the state of Victoria. And... Um, I really, Monash really got, I felt, just gave me such a great education and got me off to such a great start. I've always felt that I owe something to Monash by coming back, not just doing sessional teaching, but also over the years I've done a number of um, voluntary participative roles on um, the uh, Monash Department of Management HRM committee, uh, curriculum review committees, um, and there's a couple of others that I know I've been involved in that I, I, I can't quite think of at the moment. But I think if, if I just, if you allow me to wallow in nostalgia, and let's just think about why we're here today. And of course, and I'm not going to steal any of Marjorie's funder because Marjorie's going to talk specifically about why HR is not your friend. Now, if you go and Google why HR is not your friend, very sadly, you will come immediately come across a very, very long list of articles, not just from Australia, but globally. So I'm not going to steal any of Marjorie's fund funder other than to say that I've had a look at what Mar the points that Marjorie wants to cover, and I absolutely agree with, with just about everything she says. But Marjorie did ask me if I'd come along and having been involved with her for so long as an industry partner, which I think Monash might have always been a little bit dubious of, but look, we made it work and they left us alone. But, um, but just sort of thinking about what was it like for staff and students back when I was here in the 70s. Now, I must admit I missed the Vietnam War, but I was here in, at the time of the Whitlam dismissal, and I can assure you, both staff and students were very highly politically motivated then. And um, I remember the day that Malcolm Fraser did a visit to Monash, and uh, that was a very tumultuous day. And the turnout just like it was like the show on show day. You, 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 this whole area between well, what we used to call the Ming Wing and the Student Union. Um, was um, there was a very high degree of motivation and uh, in engagement. But of course, it, it, it's a very different world today. But let me just hark back to what are the things that this dispute is actually on about. Now, my memory of being here in the 70s uh, was that no staff member ever died from overwork. I remember that Everyone, the professors, the associate professors, the doctors, the le senior lecturers, the lecturers, the tutors, they all worked what would ostensibly be what we used to quaintly term as business hours. They were here on Monday morning, probably around 8.30, and you would see them departing around about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I knew they were departing at 5 o'clock in the afternoon because if I was at the hitching post out the front here, when it was still legal to do, um, quite often staff 
uh, would actually stop and say, oh, you're at the point where you want to go towards Oakley, hop in. And of course, um, they were more comfortable cars to get in because they'd be driving Volvos, whereas typically when students picked you up, they were unroadworthy bombs. But uh, let's face it, a ride was a ride. But anyway, the thing was, it was a very orderly way of life then. And, and I'm sort of just tying them with a couple of other things that have been said. Um, in that, from memory, the dean of the faculty then was a, was a wonderful man by the name of Don Cochran. Don was one of that visionary group of um, leaders that Sir, that Sir Louis Matheson, who was the first vice-chancellor of this university, actually handpicked to come here from Melbourne Uni. And he had a distinct vision on how he felt, along with most of the other deans at that time, um, saw how could we progress in the post-war era this higher education and of course it was a very exciting time for higher education because of course in the wake of the Whitlam government years um, a whole different approach had been taken, fees had been abolished and the um, and you know I feel terribly privileged I mean to say by the time Hex came along in 89 I'd pretty much done my education except when I did my masters fortunately my employer paid for it but um, so I feel extremely privileged in that regard, but it was a very exciting time. But I'm trying to think, well, what actually enhanced the student experience for me? And it was the fact that you knew the staff here, the door was always open. Now, Don was the dean and his door was always open and you could pop into Don and he would sit and he would talk to you. Now, I'm not sure, could if we randomly stopped any of these students, would they be able to go in and have a chat to the dean? Would, would they even know where the dean's office is? In fact, do they know even what a dean is at the university? I don't know. But anyway, I think the thing is that Don Cochran really was very much part of that generation where a university was a higher institution of learning for a higher purpose and it wasn't in any way based on profit or accumulation of... Um, well, you know, they basically hadn't morphed into the gigantic cash register that it's become today. So I sort of um, think back in terms of, well, what are the main issues coming out of this dispute? And certainly, Marjorie, you, you will no doubt um, mention it in your uh, when you speak, but I, I can see from this thermometer of overwork here that there uh, is a lot of hours being put in but the past generations when this university was established or any higher education institution back in Australia at that time would not have been doing or been expected to do. But at the end of the day, the quality of the outcome was very high. So, um, just sort of finishing up on that, I think the other way that Don Cochran was probably very ahead of his time was he actually scheduled, or what he told his, um, his staff, only schedule lectures from Monday to Thursday and try and keep Friday free from tutorials if you can and in a way he had inadvertently by default by stealth really come up with an early prototype of the four-day week um, because I can assure you it was very hard to find anyone here on a Friday and as a result well you just if you did come in on a Friday you just go into the main library it was when you, you actually went to the library to, to, to read and do your essays um, but anyway, so I suppose without sort of going on sort of too much about that, just talking a little bit about the IR side. Now, my career after I graduated here, I, I actually had been inspired by a wonderful lecturer here that gave me the light bulb moment. I want to be an IR. And of course, in those days, 
IR was a very big deal. For a start, at least I think even around the mid to late 70s, probably approximately half of Australia's working population belonged to a trade union. Yeah, um, over half. Over yeah, half, yeah. over half. Now, sadly, the private sector is well into getting into lower single digits, and I think the public sector is probably fast heading out of the teens into that direction itself. So really, it, it is a very, very different world that we're in. So, you know, perhaps if we stopped a lot of these students, they'd say, well, what's the relevance of unions? What are you talking about? What are you doing? But anyway, as I said, I was inspired to get into industrial relations and had a wonderful career both in the, um, in the airline industry and the automotive industry, ostensibly in IR, but also doing HR as well. And um, I suppose the other area where I feel I was blessed was it just happened to be at the time where IR reached its zenith in Australia because it was during the Hawke-Keating years of their government that they came up with a wonderful tripartite model called the Accord, uh, which I'm sure many of you probably have researched or done. Um, and um, that really was a very exciting time to be in, involved in IR, regardless of whether you were management, union or government or, or academia. Um, so it was, it was the least I could say, well, I actually saw the best of it, even though as I get to the tail end of my career, I think unfortunately we're starting to see the worst of it. But um, it is actually very important. And Marjorie's going to go on and talk about why HR is not your friend. And I think one of the points you will make, uh, Marjorie, is that it's so important, well, at least, in, at least in, a, in a sector where you do actually do have some union representation, that you engage proactively with that. And fortunately, I, both in the airline industry as it was then, and uh, nothing like it is today, and in the Australian automotive manufacturing industry, which sadly has shut up shop a few years ago, um, actually... Uh, had a very proactive engagement with unions and actually, not surprisingly, were very much caught up in the cutting edge of the Accord. And in fact, both those sectors both had global joint global study tours, for example, to look at as we move towards some form of collective bargaining system from the centralised system, what could we learn from other countries? What could we learn from the US, Canada, North America? What could we learn from Europe, Scandinavia, where the, most, of the, most of the action was actually happening? Um, so anyway, um, I, I was very fortunate and sort of I've sort of pretty much finished up um, with the corporates now and pretty much all I do is I continue to do sessional um, teaching with Marjorie uh, for as long as you'll have me. Um, so um, I, I think the two, that the thing that is very important that you don't want to lose sight of in this dispute is that at the end of the day it's the students and at, I like we, we, the thing that sort of really hit me when Marjorie said, "Look, now that you sort of haven't got your day job anymore, rather instead of just doing just the postgraduate in the evening, will you be happy to come and do some undergraduate?" So I said, "Oh, look, I'd love to." And I think probably um, one of the things that really concerns me about today's generation of students is how, compared to how I remember what life was like as an undergraduate. How well, two, two things. One is how incredibly disengaged they are with politics, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and, that's, and, and that's really scary because I mean to say this was very much throbbing in our veins when we when well, certainly when I was an undergraduate, it was so intrinsic for how you were going to go on after Monash 
uh, um, and engage with society. But no, absolutely, to totally disengage with politics. And the other thing that really concerns me is the fact of their t almost total reliance on news from social media. And I know that they think that, you know, well, the ABC News at 7 o'clock at night in the Age newspaper, even though I read it online, um, is what just their grandparents do. But, you know, in, in terms of this era of fake news, um, if there was ever a time that we need quality teaching is, is now to just help students think, to disseminate their way through what's actually now where we've come to and the world and the life ahead that they're going to have to sort of think rationally and analytical their way ahead. So I probably shouldn't talk, talk for too much longer other than, yes, I, I did join the, um, the NTEU, um, well, actually, uh, Kelly, a wonderful person who was one of the officials at that time, said, look, it's coming up to enterprise bargaining, so now's a good time to join. And I thought, well, come to think of it, I will. So I have joined the union. Um, but, 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 I th but I think, really, we can't kid ourselves here, is that this is really... Um, a, a unique situation that we find ourselves compared to where we've come in Australian history. Um, and I think that we just have to find ways to engage with our students, help prepare them from, for, for the life ahead. And really, that can only be done through quality teaching. And quality teaching can only come if you're given the support, the resources, and you're not worked to death and burnt out and not properly remunerated for it. So I better hand over. You, you, you. Thank you so much. So our last speaker today is Marjorie Gerard. Hello, Marjorie. Hello, Tal. Hello. Hello, everyone else. Welcome. Um, I wonder if you could tell me where you're based and how long you've been with Monash. I'm based at the Caulfield campus in N Building. Um, I got my first three-year contract here at Monash in 1997. And the reason I came to Monash was I wanted to do a PhD in industrial relations strategy, trade union strategy in particular, the meat workers union specifically, and Jerry Griffin, who was the head of the department at the time, brilliant industrial relations scholar who never sold out, unlike a contemporary of his, um, our former vice chancellor. Boo. Which one? <laughs> Margaret. <laughs> she, she's the, an industrial relations professor. Oh my God. She's meant to know how things work. Oh, well, she does, I guess. <laughs> and I've, I did my PhD and I'm here still at the end of 1998. I got tenure. Nice. <laughs> um, and, and, what, and we've heard a little preview of what you're going to be chatting about. <laughs> Who is not our friend again? Sorry. <laughs> Is it HR? HR. <laughs> I'd like to thank um, my comrades here on the panel. Um, Kate took me back to my undergraduate days at University of Queensland um, and I was taught by Dan O'Neill. I was very privileged to have that experience. I was also taught by the feminist scholar Carol Ferrier, editor of the feminist magazine Hecate. So two fabulous people and I saw many a play written by Dan's brother, um, Errol O'Neill. So that was my undergraduate days. And following on from the history theme, I wrote um, a couple of different undergraduate history papers on um, smashing machines strategically. <laughs> which looms and with which employer. It wasn't wholesale machine destroying, it was very, very targeted. 
a brilliant strategy by people who certainly didn't have an education like we have been privileged to have. So um, thank you for the, the comments on, on uh, <laughs> machine-breaking in Luddites. And also the 1300s, that takes me back to my undergraduate days too because I have a, a double major in history, not quite from the 1300s though. <laughs> So we've had a bit of a, a theme happening around history. So why am I here? I'm here because I'm a member of the NTEU and my good friend, colleague and comrade, Tui McEwen, asked me would I say a few words to the title of Why HR is Not Your Friend. So thank you for the title, Tui, and thank you for the invitation. I actually teach industrial relations in the Department of Management. I teach undergraduates, postgraduates, I've supervised honours theses in industrial relations, masters and PhDs in industrial relations within the Department of Management. I've also taught, and this was very much against my will, human resource management at the undergraduate level. They seem to think in the department because I know about industrial relations that I can teach human resource management. I taught it from a highly critical perspective. And um, once I'd done my three-year term, they gave it to one of my colleagues, who's much more of a traditional HR academic. And um, she still runs it all these years later. And I'm very... I'm, this is probably totally inappropriate to say in public, but I don't know how many undergraduates have been turned out from that HR subject with no idea of human resource management, no idea about people, which are the resources part of their job title, and who seem to go out and, and when they move out of uh, lower level HR positions and they move up the hierarchy, their moral compass seems to go. Yeah. So they come out of their undergraduate degree actually people who are wanting to make a difference, but by the time they get to a position where they can make a difference, they're subsumed into the organisation and they just can't make a difference. Now, when I was teaching human resource management many years ago, I went and invited HR people into my classroom. I also invited trade union officials into my classroom. I invited Fair Work Commissioners into my classroom, P senior public servants here in Victoria from the um, industrial relations area, and yes, employer association representatives, trying to offer some type of a balanced view and to get students to understand that if you're going into human resource management and the reason you're doing that is because you like people, <laughs> no. Don't go into human resource management because you like people. Go and do a psychology degree or something. Do not do HR. <laughs> and I met a lot of HR professionals through working here at Monash, and Chris Millen is one of them. Uh, the vast majority that I met had no professional standards or ethics that I could see. And I can count on one hand the people who come from the HR management side of the employment relationship. One hand, 
So four fingers and one thumb. And Chris, you get to be the thumb. You're the best. And then I have four other people who um, also practised what HR professionals should do. Now, why is HR not your friend? First, the duplicitous attempt to convince you that the profession is not a management function. You drop the M. People won't remember you're there for management, will they? Now, HR or HRM is still a management function, although academics, my colleagues included, and practitioners in the field would have us believe that HRM plays a significant strategic and change agent function while being the employee voice and champion. How can they do that? The roles are in direct conflict. Perhaps we need to ask the US scholar who came up with this um, approach, Dave Ulrich. He might be able to explain how an HR manager can straddle both sides of the employment relationship. Now, second, another attempt to deceive employees into believing that HRM is their champion, their voice. This is the most recent change of name within the management team. So now, they're no longer HR managers or directors of human resources. Now we see directors of management or managers of people and culture. Oh. Don't we all love that one? Yeah or human capital managers, people experience managers, people resource leaders, talent managers, people operations leaders, and so on. <laughs> now third, this has been proven within the tertiary education sector and it's no matter what area um, of management you call HR, they cannot do their job within the current industrial relations system. Our system is the simplest it has ever been since 1904 when the Conciliation and Arbitration Act was first passed. Mike Menzies, he was a former CEO of Mount Isa Mines. In 1997, he said that under the Workplace Relations Act, if you can't manage your workforce legally under that piece of legislation, you should get out of management. Woo. Needless to say, Mike was not the most popular amongst his colleagues in the mining industry, but he was correct. The Fair Work Act, which we operate under now, is also relatively simple. Why is our legislation now relatively simple? Because we have about 122 modern industry awards as opposed to 3,000 plus, which is what happened before we ended up with enterprise bargaining. The problem is that with, even under our simple system, HR can't function within that system legally. So maybe it's time that they should return to being personnel managers and officers where they legally and ethically administered payroll systems and the personnel function was about payroll, getting it right, and safety. 
aren't they two of the most important things that we should have right in any workplace, but especially a tertiary education institution? Now, personnel management came out of the United States after the Second World War, and it was located primarily in Ivy League business schools. It gained influence and prestige as an academic discipline and occupation. Yes, the job was basically Ulrich's administrative expert, and it was a boring job if you were an eight, an, a personnel professional, because you were there to ensure that wages were paid appropriately to everyone. That was your primary function. You didn't have so-called administrative errors, which is the term that our university prefers. Administrative errors, not wages theft. And I... And I would like to highlight that the Fair Work Commission in its recent decision last week, has basically said don't fiddle with your enterprise bargaining agreement, which is now lapsed, to uh, just because you want to say your, your wages theft problem is an administrative matter. No. Fourth, HR. Let's use the preferred term with our university. Primarily makes an appearance for disciplinary and grievance matters where they hope, fingers crossed, that's their fingers crossed, that these troublesome employees will not know their legal right to take a representative to such meetings. If an employee knows their rights and that they have a right of representation, they're going to be in a much stronger position to fight their employer's allegations, misrepresentations, criticisms of that particular employee. The best representative to take is someone from the National Tertiary Education Union. Those people, they understand our system within Monash when it comes to HR, and they are best placed to represent an employee. Fifth, HR, our university's preferred term, and enterprise bargaining. Again, our university gets it wrong here. Chris and I teach this to undergraduates and postgraduates. What do you do in enterprise bargaining to get a good outcome for everyone? Chris could have taken you through his many rounds as a lead negotiator for General Motors Holden on the management side, where he actually worked with the unions in the Vehicle Builders Federation and he had a relationship with those union officials. They used to come and speak to my students as a consequence. And Chris would be there, and you could see the respect and the friendship between union and management. We have none of that here. And our union negotiators are staff. So they're not even professionals, but they volunteer. They're good at negotiation in their own right. Um, we have scholars from um, business law and taxation as one of the lead negotiators. So someone who knows the rights of employees and how the system works and knows how negotiation for a bargaining agreement works. So, the basis on which to utilise good faith bargaining principles under our current industrial relations legislation in order to achieve a positive outcome for employees, uh, that means that the university needs to have senior bargaining people at the bargaining table. 
if you do not have senior HR representatives at a bargaining table, you're wasting everybody's time. Because those people have no authority to make decisions on behalf of the university management. They have to go out and consult. Why is the agreement stalled? Why have we reached a bargaining impasse? Falls at the door of HR. We are at a bargaining impasse and in con industrial conflict occurs as a result of this impasse. And this is run by employees and their representative, the NTEU. They cannot make ground with HR's delaying tactics. Thus, as a last resort to progress negotiations and have senior HR representatives at a bargaining table, um, we have had to take industrial action. Now, we shouldn't be pushed to this type of a position by HR. And they call themselves HR professionals. At best, you might call them practitioners. Now, our union representatives at the bargaining table have the members' authority to make decisions on our behalf. And when an agreement is finally reached, we, the union members, vote on that agreement. So our officials and our members of academic staff or professional staff who are at that negotiating table, they have power and authority. Now, we are supposed to have democratic processes to form an ambit bargaining agenda and to decide on industrial action. We do this as a union and its members and its executive. Why can't our university's HR team also have people who are empowered to make decisions? What are some other reasons for why HR is not your friend? Well, I, from one of my industry speakers, and it wasn't Chris, it was a fabulous person um, whose name is Sally Wilson, who worked as an HR manager for 20 years in public health system here in Victoria. And Sally's principles for being a good HR manager, build the relationship with the union and use the union as an asset. The union is not the enemy of HR. The union is there to help HR. Play fair, be transparent and remain calm at all times. Conflict in any form needs to be faced, whether it's individual such as bullying or a personality conflict um, amongst staff or whether it is collective action such as we are engaged in this week. Um, it must be dealt with quickly. Conflict spreads. Individual conflict spreads across an entire organisation fairly rapidly. And we've seen examples of issues around uh, people's mistreatment, bullying, harassment, just disrespect, discrimination and so on, rearing its head. You need an HR manager who can address this quickly. Don't be conflict averse if you're an HR manager. So where are they here? They should be here actually listening to what you are all saying. No, they're not here because they're conflict averse and they don't treat their staff with respect that they deserve. 
Fourth, and this is a mundane role for an HR professional, you take accurate notes and records of all meetings and grievance procedures in case they are ever needed for something that is formal. The Fair Work Commission has little time for HR professionals who waste its time by not having accurate uh, records for evidence. And I can guarantee that the last hearing I sat in on with a full bench, um, those commissioners, vice president, deputy president, they looked at the King's Council for Monash and wondered why he was wasting their time. They had something better to do with that afternoon than sit listening to a, a King's Council who really had no idea of what enterprise bargaining was about and what the wages theft case that they were hearing was about. They couldn't even brief their own lawyer. Now, an HR professional has to check all contracts, policies, agreements and industry awards to ensure consistency and compliance. These are legal documents. You can't make a mistake. If you make a mistake, you put your hand up and say, okay, I made a mistake, I got that wrong. Because it'll come out when you end up in the Fair Work Commission and when the NTEU wins at that level and then it is escalated up to the federal court and then the federal court says, this is a, this is a bargaining matter, this is not for us to hear, go back to the Fair Work Commission. So you need to understand the legal implications of, of your behaviour and documents if you are an HR professional. And lastly, you have to be focused on outcomes and you must always be prepared and you need to be flexible with regards to your position and listen to other people who aren't part of your HR team. Now, if we had func HR functioning like this, we would not have to be here today on strike. But we don't because HR at Monash is certainly not your friend. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Marjorie. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Kate, Danny, Adam, Bernard, and Pod Daddy Sofio for all the work they've put into this. And we'll catch you next time.